So yeah, apologetics in 3D, like 3D films, and like those three transcendental values that Bjorn was just mentioning. I want to say that Christianity is about God's call to enter into a Christ-centred way of life. Uh, another way of saying way of life would be a spirituality in English. Um, a way of life that brings together, to kind of integrate, bring together our, uh, our assumptions, our attitudes and our actions in faithfulness to Jesus. So we have our, our, our assumptions, our attitudes, our actions. We live in a world, of course, of numerous contradictory spiritualities, and we face the question, you know, why follow Jesus? Uh, why be a Christian rather than a Muslim, atheist, agnostic, pagan, Buddhist, Hindu, etc., etc., etc.? I think seeking persuasive responses to this question can help our own uh, spiritual stability in such a world uh, and is important uh, as a way to obey Jesus' command to love our neighbour. I think the attempt to offer persuasive responses to questions about why anyone would commit themselves to a Christ-centred spirituality is called apologetics. Now apologetics is a terrible word in English for this context really because uh, English people will immediately think of apologising, saying sorry for something that you've done wrong. But apologetics comes from the, the Greek word used in the New Testament, uh, apologia, which was the term for a, a speech making a legal defence in court. Uh, hence the title of Plato's famous uh, Apology of Socrates, when Socrates was on trial in ancient Athens. More generally, to give an apologia is to give a, a verbal defence. Uh, the Apostle Peter very famously uses the term in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, where he says, But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defence, an apologia, to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Peter's command calls upon all Christians in general to be ready to make an apology for their faith. First century Christian leaders like Paul or Apollos or Luke and John had ministries with a very strong apologetic dimension Second century Christian intellectuals like Quadratus, Aristides of Athens, Justin Martyr, uh, Athenagoras and Tertullian uh, addressed the Roman authorities in various so-called apologies uh, for the Christian faith and its, its place in the empire and not persecuting Christians and so on, uh, becoming thereby known as the early church apologists. And since then, apologetics has become an, an interdisciplinary part of Christian theology. Interdisciplinary. Uh, so different subjects coming together in order to give you a picture of something. So uh, apologetics includes fields like philosophy, but also fields like uh, a New Testament uh, 
literary criticism or archaeology or history, uh, etc. Systematic theology and practical yeah. theology. It all kind of uh, matters mm -hmm. to the subject of apologetics. Think a little bit about defining apologetics. Um, you might think that only a philosopher could get excited about defining something, um, but we do because definitions are very important. Understanding what we're thinking and what we're talking about is very important and has very practical consequences. So William Lane Craig is a very famous American Christian philosopher and apologist. He defines apologetics this way. He says it's that branch of Christian theology which seeks to provide a rational justification for the truth claims of the Christian faith. And that's a pretty typical kind of standard definition of Christian apologetics. You might know this definition from our own last Dar. It says that Christian apologetics may be described as the rational justification of Christian truth claims over against specific questions, objections and alternatives in order to establish the, the epistemic permission, the, the rational allowability and the epistemic obligation, the need to, of the Christian faith for both Christians and non-Christians. Now, this is obviously a more nuanced definition than the one from Craig, uh, because it distinguishes, say, between questions, objections and alternative spiritualities. It distinguishes between arguing for epistemic permission of faith and epistemic obligation of uh, Christian truth claims. What does epistemic uh, to, to do with reason and to do with knowing, yeah. So epistemic permission, you argue that the Christian position is okay. You can be Christian or atheist. You're permitted to be a Christian. It's rational. The second one, obligation, is saying that you should become a Christian. The Christianity is the best. Uh, you should yeah. be obliged to trust in Christianity. Like you'd be being irrational if you didn't. You see the, the difference? Yeah. It's, it's two levels of arguing. One is just giving a room for the Christian faith as one perspective among men and many, which is important. The second is arguing that Christianity is the best or the truth. Mm. Now, given the historical dominance of these kind of intellectually focused concepts of apologetics, discussion of how to go about doing apologetics, and Apologetics often uh, like arguing about, well, how should we do this thing called apologetics? That's traditionally been concerned with different approaches to using rational arguments with non-Christians, particularly. Um, different apologetics approaches might be classified according to their underlying theory of knowledge, epistemology in philosophy. How, how do we know things? How do we prove things? How do we argue? Could you give examples of that? Is there, there are different approach, understandings yeah, of Yeah, yeah. So um, uh, some would be very kind of uh, sort of scientific in their approach about empirical evidence and what can we argue from empirical evidence. Some would be a lot more kind of um, philosophical in, in their approach um, uh, and so on. Some would have uh, lots of arguments about, well, uh, who has the burden of proof here? Uh, can can it, uh, you know, do you have to have an argument for the existence of God in order for belief in God's existence to be rational, actually? Uh, it's questions like those. However, 
an ancient Greek or Roman lawyer, going back to apologia, would be aware that there's more to a convincing speech than good argumentation alone. Uh, as C. Stephen Evans writes, coming to faith is a total transformation of the person. I'm going back to the idea of spirituality, a way of life. It's not just about what's up here. Such a transformation cannot occur merely through the consideration of evidence. Uh, trying to get someone who's a non-Christian to become a Christian isn't trying to just get them to change how they would answer a pub quiz about what they believe about the nature of reality. You're actually asking them to, to shift from one spirituality, one way of life, into another different way of life. So uh, Kevin Kinghorn and Jerry L. Walls here say, God draws us towards a relationship with him in which we find our ultimate fulfillment. However, the distinction is to be drawn between belief and a, a, a relational commitment marked by faith. The goal of the apologist is a relationship marked by faith. And they urge that biblical apologetics is a holistic, sort of multi-dimensional enterprise. In, in Norwegian, mm. we only have one word for faith, right? Uh, but here you can see a distinction between believing that something is just true and relating to that God. God exists, and faith here is yeah. it, it, so it faith. More, even the devil knows that God exists. Right. Yeah, faith in, the, in 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 the concepts of like, do I actually trust in you? Do I give my allegiance to you? I have advanced a holistic definition of apologetics that's grounded in the three-part description of spirituality that I began with. Uh, I've published a series of essays over the years that were recently gathered together into this book, Apologetics in 3D. And I see Christian apologetics as the, the art and science of using good rhetoric, and I'll unpack some of these key terms later, of using good rhetoric to help people to be persuaded that a Christ-centred spirituality is a beautiful, good, and reasonable, stroke, true life commitment for them to make. That a Christ-centred spirituality is a beautiful, good, and reasonable, stroke, true life commitment. That is to say, to help people be persuaded that Christian spirituality is at least, no less, and ideally more reasonable and or true, good, and beautiful than any of the alternative spiritualities. Uh, to take an image from the Greek philosopher Socrates, who I mentioned earlier, I see the Christian apologist as a kind of spiritual midwife, helping people to deliver as strong and healthy a spiritual response to Jesus as they can muster. And that's about their, their whole way of life. So, Socrates is famous for this. He didn't claim to have the answers, but he was he was inviting people to the, the truth they already knew to bring that out, so he brings that out in, um, in apologetics. 
spiritual midwife helping people deliver strong response. Right. So, uh, to give uh, the slightly longer definition, and then we'll pause for, for questions, and then in the second half I'll, I'll go through each of these three parts of the 3D mm -hmm. structure. So I, I put forward this idea of apologetics as uh, the art and science of persuasively advocating Christian spirituality, doing that through the responsible use of good rhetoric as being, so this is using the rhetoric to help people discover Christian spirituality as being something that is objectively beautiful, good and true, stroke, reasonable for them to adopt. So let's uh, pause there before I pick deeper into those kind of three uh, levels and see if you have any uh, questions, uh, not just of, of comprehension, clarification, but any questions, objections, uh, I ideas that that sparks could in you. Could you bring back the, the, the definition? Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, let me... Um, so, so, when you go back and read the Bible, you will, if you if you know this great truth, mm. goodness and beauty, you've shown that. I, I, did, yeah. I didn't see this before you came up mm. and well, it's all over the yeah. place. When you know what to look for, you'll find it yeah. very, very many places. Yeah. You know, this brings spirituality together in one unity. Um, yeah, good. So let's think just briefly a little more in depth about these three areas, starting with Christian spirituality. Uh, so I think everyone basically has a, a, a spirituality, a way of life that's made up of your worldview assumptions, that is the ideas about reality that you believe and or act upon, whether or not you believe them, combined with attitudes so, uh, I, you know, sometimes I talk about head, heart and hands, but I don't just mean heart or attitudes in the sense of kind of emotional responses. I also mean what you choose, what you commit to, um, where you give your allegiance to and so on. So your assumptions, your attitudes, and the combination of your assumptions and attitudes leads you to act. Uh, you don't act just because you have beliefs, but because you have certain beliefs that you have certain attitudinal heart responses to that lead you to behave in a certain way. So as I say, you can also put this as head, heart and, and hands. This spiritual structure is, is generic, the same for a Buddhist as for a Christian, I think. But the spiritual content in these categories would differ. Of course, there can be overlap because we can have agreement on things with people from other religious views and so on. But there will be differences that mark out the distinctions between different spiritualities. That content differs from one spirituality to another. Karl Marx there. So persuasively advocating Christi Christian spirituality uh, through the responsible use of rhetoric. Let me talk a little bit about rhetoric. Uh, going back to Aristotle, who wrote the first textbook on rhetoric, uh, ancient Greek pagan philosopher from the 4th century BC. He defined rhetoric as the power to observe the persuasiveness, what is persuasive, 
of which any particular matter admits. So helping people to notice what is persuasive about anything. Rhetoric encompasses the principles of how best to, to help an audience make the same objective observations. And the, the key term here is objective observations, and that, I think, makes a, a difference between just kind of manipulative, kind of advertising kind of rhetoric and, and good rhetoric. Uh, here's a famous passage uh, from Aristotle that I've put in the, the orange here, some key terms that relate to what we're talking about. So he says, of the, the ways of the modes of persuasion furnished by the spoken word, there are three kinds. The first, called ethos, depends on the personal character of the speaker. Um, that's really relating to the goodness of the speaker, the character. The second, pathos, on putting the audience into a certain frame of mind. Um, I would relate this to beauty. And the third, logos, um, on the proof provided by the words of the speech itself. So I would write logos to truth. Now here's a passage from Paul, from Colossians 4, verses 5 to 6, in which, giving advice on doing evangelism, Paul mentions the same three categories of rhetoric as does Aristotle. He even mentions them in the same order. When you are with unbelievers, always make good use of the time. Be pleasant. This is about your ethos. And hold their interest when you speak the message. That's about pathos, in, you know, engage them uh, at a, a heart, kind of visceral level. Uh, choose your words carefully and be ready to give answers to anyone who asks questions. It's about logos. So here is Paul giving the same kind of rhetorical advice. Now, as uh, James Herrick explains, um, nice little definition of rhetoric here, when we express emotions and thoughts to other people with the goal of influencing or persuading them, we engage in rhetoric. Note that on this definition, rhetoric is not limited to the spoken or written words. Aristotle's emphasis is on giving a speech with words. But if we broaden our understanding of rhetoric just a little, we could, we could include, like, showing people a painting, playing them a song with music, and the music is an important part of the meaning of the song, right? Um, nice quote here from William Dembski from the States, talking about Christian apologetics needing to go at pathos much more deliberately. This is activating people's imagination through pictures, intuitions and stories will be crucial here. And Christian apologists need to incorporate such tools in their tool chest. In sum, if apologetics is going to be an effective instrument for moving our cultural environment closer to the kingdom of God, it needs to take full advantage of the three appeals of persuasion, logos, ethos and pathos. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, in Logos, we're asking, is that argument reasonable? Uh, the first two chapters of my Introduction to Philosophy book, A Faithful Guide to Philosophy, deal with that and give you this nice flowchart diagram, which is basically all you need to remember in order to, through practice, get good at arguing well. <laughs> the three questions of any argument uh, are the premises clear and unambiguous? Does the conclusion really follow from the 
the premises, the statements before the conclusion, and are all of those premises true? If so, then you get some confidence in um, the answer that's being supported by that argument. In ethos, we're really asking, is that person of good character? Um, so, you know, this is a, a, a challenge to our own uh, discipleship, uh, of course, here. Uh, Aristotle highlights three components of ethos. So ethos is one of the three bits of rhetoric, and he says ethos has three components that need to be established with audiences. Uh, Eunoia is the, the credibility or your likability, the, the goodwill and trust you can, uh, can establish with an audience. Phronesis is your intelligence and wisdom that you can display to an audience, um, showing them that you've got experience of the subject you're talking about, uh, that you've got appropriate academic qualifications to talk about the subject, um, referencing recognised proper authorities in the area, highlighting points of agreements with your opponents and, and so on. And a third, arete, is basically the, the, the moral virtue of your position and the way in which you deal with and try to persuade people who disagree with you. So treating your opponents well. Um, demonstrating that you've got good intentions. Uh, authenticity is really, really key uh, here. Uh, and it, Again, biblical examples, I think you can clearly see that Paul in his ministry, for example, uh, exhibits uh, the credibility of Eunoia, and I give some references, the wisdom of Phronesis and the moral virtue of, of Arete, and I'm sure you could find lots of other uh, examples. And third, pathos, we're really asking, is X, whatever that is, is it aesthetically excellent? Is it beautiful? Um, it seems to me that when you're making arguments for the existence of God, say, formal kind of theistic arguments are generally a trade-off between accessibility and robustness. Accessibility in terms of being brief, short, uh, being intuitively convincing, having a, you know, lacking a need for knowing specialised knowledge in order to be able to access what the argument's going on about. Whereas robustness often means uh, being very explicit about the logical structure and validity of the argument, uh, often means depending upon specialised knowledge about cosmology or whatever, right? So kind of at the two extremes of presenting arguments to God for an audience, you might say, at one extreme, um, here, have a look at this photo of a peacock. At the other extreme, you might say, here, look at this uh, modalised ontological argument from Alvin Plantinga. Right? Now, the, the Plantingan ontological argument set out in modal logic here is, you might think, much more robust as a theistic argument. Uh, you know, it's certainly formally logically valid and very explicitly so. It, uh, knowing what this is going on about depends upon a lot of specialised knowledge. Uh, in, in, in logic and philosophy. Um, it's not very accessible. <laughs> it's probably not very intuitively convincing to most audiences, right? On the other hand, you might say showing people a photograph of a peacock, that's not even really giving them an argument. <laughs> but it is very accessible, 
brief. It is perhaps to mo more, much more, many more people, at least, intuitively convincing in terms of why should I think that there might be some kind of creator? Oh, look at that. Okay. Now, as I say, those are kind of at the extremes. And when we're presenting to audiences, we often want to kind of try and walk that tightrope <laughs> and uh, appropriately for the audience that we're addressing. But you, you, you see at least how incorporating, say, images of the natural world that are, that are really impressive and beautiful and stunning and so on uh, could be part of a presentation of, say, the design argument and that that might uh, be more persuasive to audiences than if you did that talk without any slides. And just, just talked from the lectern about the details of uh, some aspect of microbiology or, or something, right? So, but if you can do both at the same time, it's probably you know, the best of both worlds. So I think Christian apologists should consider the, the, the beauty, the ascetic aspect of their rhetoric. We need to work on the, the literary qualities of our writing, the oratory qualities of our speaking, um, the ascetic qualities of our presentations, podcasts, videos. Uh, we might think about things like the music we play as people wait for or leave an event. The cultural artefacts like films, music and so on that we engage with in a talk, uh, using a dramatic reading from a, a novel, uh, a poem or indeed from the Bible. Um, uh, and by a dramatic reading I mean not just getting someone to come up and we will now read the scripture for t today and it, you know, but actually having someone who's confident to kind of read that bit of scripture like you were reading, you were listening to a radio drama. Right, like you were some, someone who can like act it at the audience to bring it alive, and it has much more impact then. Historically, of course, Christianity has informed some art of very high aesthetic quality, and there's plenty of high quality Christian art in the modern era, although there's also plenty of very low quality Christian art in the modern era. This is interesting. Catholic philosopher Peter Kreef notes, I personally know three ex-atheists or agnostics. One is a philosophy professor, one is an apologist, one is a Benedictine monk, all of whom told me, independently of each other, that the reason they're not atheists today is the St. Matthew passion of Johann Sebastian Bach. Mashi, mashi, uh, I'm going to get this wrong, right? Masishi Musada from Japan says that Glenn Gold's interpretation of Bach's Goldberg variations first aroused his interest in Christianity. He says, there was something about that music that prompted me to probe deeper and deeper into its spiritual origins. Uh, Musada is now a Jesuit priest and a lecturer in systematic theology at Tokyo's Sophia University. Um, so people can, you know, come into Christianity and interest in Christianity and exploring it at least through all sorts of means and you, you never know the fact that you might be playing you know a bit of Bach's Goldberg variations as the audience comes in it might be the Bach that actually gets someone's interest <laughs> rather than what you say in your talk but hey let's use every tool available to us 
Uh, Peter Hitchens, who is the brother of the famous atheist Christopher Hitchens, he describes his own return to faith as partly partly influenced by seeing uh, Roger van der Weyden's 15th century painting, The Last Judgment, when he was on holiday and just visiting a church as a tourist. And here's the, the painting, and here's a quote uh, from Peter's book. He says, I, I scoffed, I laughed uh, at its mention in the guidebook, but now seeing it, I gaped, my mouth actually hanging open at the naked figures fleeing towards the pit of hell. Because they were naked, they were not imprisoned in their own age by time-bound fashions. On the contrary, they were me and people I knew. I had a, a sudden strong sense of religion being a thing of the present day not imprisoned under thick layers of time. My large catalogue of misdeeds replayed themselves rapidly in my head. I had absolutely no doubt that I was among the damned, if there were any damned. But, you know, he, he, he was kind of in that attitude of, uh, of the age that he grew up in he says where you now we now live in the scientific age and religion is all like superstition and myth and so on and we, we've we've outgrown all of that and and religion is this kind of historical relic from the past and it's not really relevant to life today and just seeing this 15th century painting kind of cracked that resistance to seeing religion as something that at least potentially could be could be relevant and real in the here and now isn't that astonishing? And I'm, I showed you this slide earlier and we, we played the song earlier when uh, we were waiting for folks to uh, arrive. Um, art by the Japanese-American Christian artist Makoto Fujimura, uh, who's a modern artist who uses uh, precious materials in an ancient uh, Japanese way of doing uh, art with precious uh, gems kind of ground up into the paints and so on and gold and gold leaf and so on and this song by Iona and I've often used this image and this song to kind of explain to people what would it feel like to live within the Christian universe actually and I think this song is a good encapsulation of kind of actually there are things that are horrible about life but there is hope within the Christian worldview um, good Atheistic art, indeed, can highlight the existential problems of atheism. And I won't play you the song, but um, uh, here's uh, the lyrics from a song by Stuart John uh, Woolley Wollstoneholm. Um, he went to an exhibition in London called the Body Works Exhibition uh, that was a display of preserved dead bodies in various kind of poses of ordinary life. And he wrote this song after going to that exhibition. Here's a photo from the exhibition in the song called Blood, Blood and Bones. He was standing on the Bridge of Sighs and looking down. The water's out. We've had our run. There is no doubt we're all washed up with the tide. Still standing on the Bridge of Sighs. Our cash is blown. It's all been spent. In every way we own the rent. We're all washed up with the tide. Seems to me... There's more to this than meets the eye. Something more than just the life we're living. Without a soul, we're nothing more than 
blood and bones. Hanging from the Bridge of Sighs, the whole thing's gone and can't be had from Don't Look Now that something bad is all washed out with the tide. Requiem Eternum, Requiem, Requiem. He's kind of singing a requiem for the death of the image of humanity that is now gone with the death of God and the receding tide of, of faith. And that's a, a powerful communication of what it feels like to try and kind of face up to the emptiness of a universe without God. And what does getting rid of God do to our view of humanity and, and so on? Good art of any spirituality can invoke the transcendent, it can raise spiritual questions at least that we can then engage with, uh, with audiences. In my book Outgrowing God, uh, the agnostic character, it's written as a dialogue between characters, and the agnostic character, Japanese student called Hiromi, and my Christian character, a Norwegian student called Astrid, who's a uh, ex-graduate of the Worldview and Communication course here at uh, Gimlacollin, uh, discuss the religious meaning of some progressive rock music that they both like. There's even a YouTube musical playlist for the book called Hiromi's Playlist, which is uh, an interesting listen, I hope. Uh, the Appendix 2 of Apologetics in 3D, I describe my own work as an amateur uh, Christian composer. Um, you can listen to some uh, electronic renderings of some of my music uh, in the composing section of my website. So I do the little bits that I can do that I'm interested in as, as hobbies to kind of push that communication of the Christian worldview through, through art as well as through um, argument. Finally, just very briefly, uh, doing all this uh, as uh, objectively beautiful, good and reasonable. Uh, by objective I mean the kind of thing that you discover rather than the kind of thing you invent. It, it doesn't depend on you that it is what it is, right? Objectively beautiful and good and true. And uh, even in the church, I think a lot of us will have lost the sense that beauty is something that's objective rather than, as the, the phrase goes, oh, beauty's just in the eye of the beholder. It's kind of relative and dependent uh, upon us. Uh, I do not think that that is true. As the philosopher John Cottingham from the UK says, truth, beauty and goodness all carry with them the sense of a requirement and a demand. The true is that which is worthy of belief. The beautiful is that which is worthy of admiration. That's objectively worthy of admiration. You are objectively within your moral rights to appreciate its qualities. And the good is that which is worthy of, of choice. I'm going to choose to do that because it's good. And this worthy of sense is the same for kind of connects all these three truth, goodness, beauty. Here's Paul in Philippians 4.8 showing that he certainly uh, was no postmodernist and had an objective uh, view of value. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is morally true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, 
think about such things. You know, a postmodernist would, would kind of write, oh, you know, whatever you like. Yeah, <laughs> cool. <laughs> this is a, a quote from Timothy Keller's book on preaching. He's talking about preaching here, but if we just uh, substitute the word apologetics for the word sermon, uh, we can apply this here as well, I think. This is a great quote. He says, people change not by merely changing their thinking, but by changing what they love most. So, the goal of the sermon, or of apologetics, right, cannot be merely to make the truth clear and understandable to the mind, but must also be to make it gripping and real to the heart. Change happens not just by giving the mind new arguments, but also by feeding the imagination new beauties. It, it's both, not either or. As the British theologian Alastair McGrath says, apologetics involves enabling people to glimpse something of the glory and beauty of God. Apologetics engages not only the mind but also the heart and we impoverish the gospel if we neglect the impact it has on all of our God-given faculties. And it's encouraging me to me to see that in, in recent years there's been more and more books coming out talking about taking a sort of more holistic, broader approach to apologetics uh, than that tradition of just focusing on rational argumentation. It's not saying rational arguments are bad, but it's saying but we, we should have more to it as well. So along with my own books, books like Paul, Paul Gold talking about cultural apologetics or um, Holly Ordway's book on apologetics and the Christian imagination, uh, McGrath talking about narrative, story within apologetics and so on, uh, Nancy Pierce's uh, engagement with uh, culture and art and film in apologetics and so on. Uh, that's all great stuff uh, that you might wish to pursue at your leisure. There we go, I'll end there.